Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading today is Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The New Testament reading is Romans 3, 21 through 31. Romans 3, 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Good morning. If you're, if you're packed, there's some more seats up front if you guys need it. Amen corner too, if you want. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, if, I'm wondering if any of you have seen uh, the new movie Oppenheimer. Uh, it was based off apparently this book called American Prometheus, which I find very interesting. Who is Prometheus? Any of you children remember your Greek mythology? Prometheus was the one who gave fire to humans, right? And was punished horribly by the Greek gods. But there was a sense in Oppenheimer, as with Prometheus, that, that everything afterwards is different. Everything had changed. So with, for that case, with the invention of the atomic bomb, which is what the movie's about, by the way, in case you didn't, spoiler alert, uh, they do make the bomb. But is really everything different after that? What would you say, if it's not the invention of the atomic bomb, what would you say is that pivotal moment in history after which everything is different? Some may say 9-11, some may say the invention of modern medicine or vaccinations, some would say maybe the publication of the origin of species and our understanding of life. What is the most significant event in history? Well, you may not be surprised that I am going to submit to you that it, it, there is no clearer answer to that question than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Actually, nothing even comes close. No person, no event comes close to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be here, and you may be thinking, that sounds ridiculously arrogant, doesn't it? How could I possibly stand up here and claim that? Well, what would be your answer if it's not that? There's got to be some event. You are staking your life on something, some event, some person. If you don't think there's anything much that's important, you're just talking like a good modern person who's relativistic and pluralistic. But you are answering that question in some way. And I want to argue from this incredible passage, especially this Romans 3 passage, that it is the redeeming and sacrificial love of Christ. We are beginning this five-part series in uh, what we call around this church, what we call Total Christ. Everyone should have uh, a devotional to go along with it that you can take home with you. Feel free to engage in that. Throughout the next five weeks, there's a short devotional for each day that goes along with the same uh, theme of the week, and today is gospel-centered, and of course, that's going to come out from this passage, especially in Romans 3. Uh, I also do want to remind you, you can text, if you guys have any questions, text that number. Um, we're going to be... We're going to be... Uh, engaging. We're going to do like a follow-up to the sermon podcast during the week. Uh, so if you do want to uh, ask anything, we, we will have a chance to get to it. Uh, but let's pray and we will jump into Romans 
3. Lord, we do praise you. Praise you that you have set this part, this day apart, and we thank you that you have given us your word. We don't have to wonder, uh, will you speak to us? How will you act to us today? You tell us, you show us most magnificently in Jesus. So we do ask that your Holy Spirit would be among us because we are so dead in our sin that we don't, we can't just read the truth. We need you to open our hearts and minds to hear it. That is what we pray for. Lord, may Jesus be exalted as we come to marvel at his work. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. We are jumping into the end of chapter 3 in the book of Romans, and I want to look first at two main points, the first being face your judge, and the second being behold your judge. But first face your judge, because it is the assumption of this entire passage, partly because he's already spent two chapters talking about it, and we get a very brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 in the passage we read Verse 23, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is basically Paul's quick summary of what he has spent a couple chapters talking about, which is the righteousness of God. In other words, the justice of God. He assumes, every Jew alive assumes, most pagans assume that God is just. And that word, I will tell you one really helpful thing in this passage to keep in mind, especially if you're a close reader, that word righteous and that word justified or just and justifier or righteous, they're all the same root word. So if he says the just and the justifier, you could also say the righteous one and the one who makes righteous. And when it says the righteousness of God, it's the same word for the justice of God. So don't get caught up if that word righteous sounds strange, but we are indeed talking about the righteousness or justice of God. Chapter 1, Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he goes on and basically unpacks, so how does the righteousness of God work? Well, first, we see the righteousness of God, when it meets human sin, creates God's wrath. That would not have been surprising to the Jews. He's writing to a group that is a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. And that part would not have been surprising, sure. If God is just, then he has a lot of sin to deal with out there, right? In those people. What would have been surprising for the Jews is chapters 2 and then into 3, where he concludes, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. That every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or made righteous in his sight. That is what surprises the Jews. 
Have you ever had an experience like that where you feel like your mouth has been stopped? Because that's really where we need to start. That's what is assumed by Paul, and if we don't start there, the rest will seem like not that big a deal. But every real encounter with God starts with silence. It starts oftentimes with a prophet falling on his face. How could I possibly be in the presence of the holy and righteous God who is perfectly just? Not just pretty just. Not just Sorry, I keep saying not just, just. He's not just, just. He's really just. He's absolutely just. We're not just talking about a just society, although that includes that. We're talking about every thought that you have ever had, he knows. Every desire, he knows. When we realize that, we have to be stopped then we may realize what this, there's this ancient church saying that says, he who cannot be silent should never speak because he will have nothing to say. If you can't be silent before the almighty God, you will never be able to hear the word of God. The sad thing is, of course, we live in the noisiest culture in the history of the world, don't we? Literally and metaphorically. Everyone has something to say. Everyone has something to say. Because we assume in our culture Even if we don't want to, it's hard not to. We assume not that God is just or righteous and that we should be silent. We assume God must be, if he exists at all, must be merciful, right? Maybe he's just, but of course he's going to let me into heaven. We have the opposite assumption to what the text has here. How can he not let me in? Come on, not that bad. At this point, if we really want to... uh, try to understand what it means that every mouth has been stopped uh, before Almighty God. I want us to realize that this, the next step is where Christianity sets itself apart. Everyone, whether they call it God and sin and salvation or something else, everyone has something to say about that. Every religion, every philosophy, every worldview, you're trying to reach some goal. And there's some problem with us that we can't reach it very well. Right? Nirvana, salvation, heaven, whatever you may call it, Valhalla, whatever you want to call it, every other religion besides Christianity does two things that Christianity refuses to do. Either it brings God down, right? It minimizes the gap that we have to God, makes it more approachable or salvation, or nirvana, or whatever. Or it inflates the human ability so that we seem to have a chance. 
Either the ladder, if you think about climbing a mountain, either the mountain really isn't that high, or humans are really good hikers. Every other religion or philosophy does one or both, maybe both, of those. That is what Christianity refuses to do. And that is what we see in our passage. The way our passage starts. But now, all the world has been stopped, held accountable to God. But now, as one theologian says, all Christian theology can be summarized by nevertheless. Nevertheless, aside from the absolute justice of God, God reveals something else. So we have to first face our judge, yes, and then behold what your judge does. Verse 24, it's almost hard to understand. It's like Paul's getting ahead of himself. Totally doesn't make any sense until you get to verse 25. We've been given redemption as a gift by grace. No, first, verse 25 explains it. God starts the process. He has to. Right? We're dead in our sin. Where are we going to start? In our grave. God starts the process. He takes the initiative. So here we have God the Father putting forward. Is the literal words there? God puts forward Jesus Christ. Putting forward as a propitiation. We have this sacrifice language. I want us to realize that we do not want to picture God the Father as having to be convinced by Jesus. Jesus is not twisting the arm of an angry God the Father. No, it's God the Father who sends Jesus who also wants to obey for our salvation. God puts forward, he chooses to solve the problem himself. Even though he's the one we have committed cosmic treason against, he is the one who chooses to start the solution. God puts forward as a propitiation for our sin. Now that word, let's do that word. It's a funky word, right? Propitiation, maybe atoning sacrifice helps us get it to it. It's often the same word as the mercy seat in the temple that was used in Jerusalem which is where the sacrifices would have been accomplished, where God himself was said to dwell. So we have Jesus being the victim in our place, the sacrifice for our sin. It has been dealt with. We also learn that all the ways that they were dealing with sin in the Old Testament was insufficient. Because Paul says that God had been passing over the former sins, our former sins. So it wasn't until Jesus that sin was ever fully punished. That's what he says, right? Do you have the passage in front of you? Where'd my bulletin go? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This is verse 25. 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, to put it on display, even to prove it in history. He was always righteous. But you could have said to God, God, why haven't you fully punished our sin yet before Jesus? He doesn't, right? He gives Adam and Eve life still after the fall. Was to show his righteousness, to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Which means, yes, the Old Testament sacrifice was meant to point us to Jesus. That's amazing. If you ever try to read the book of Leviticus, try to keep that in mind. It's all meant to show us something about the depth of Jesus' work. And it also means that our sin finally has been punished in Jesus. At the present time, he's writing 2,000 years ago, of course, talking about in the light of Jesus, but now something has changed. At the present time, something absolutely revolutionary to which the word revolution doesn't even come close has happened. Because now our sin has finally been fully dealt with. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's like he has solved this cosmic dilemma. How can we possibly exist in the presence of that perfect judge? Well, God has figured out a way. And if you picture God as a judge, which we may not do that all that well, We don't do it very often, but that certainly is one way to think of him. If you imagine God as judge, before the courtroom is told, all rise and he departs, he gets up first, comes down out of his judgment seat to take on our sentence. He puts himself in Jesus Christ in the place. He wants to be with the people that he has just declared guilty. He's not leaving that behind. Absolutely guilty. We don't have to look past that or sacrifice it or minimize it, right? The mountain is still impossibly hard to climb. And so the judge from the top of the mountain comes down and deals with our sin. That's why he's still just. That's why he is absolutely just or righteous or holy. Because he does not wink at sin. We have, realize this, humans have incredible dignity. We are made for the presence of God and sin is an aberration. So if we wink at sin, that is not giving us our due. It's not giving us the dignity we deserve because we are made for something much, much more than sin. 
So if God were to just let it slide, we become less than human. And God could never do that because he is just. So, I hope you are in awe of your judge. And if this is the 8,000th time you've heard this, I hope you try to still be in awe because there are many, many, many implications that we can draw. We can always go deeper into these truths. But I don't have time to do 8,000, so I will do five. I want to look at five implications. If we, if we first have faced our judge and then are able to behold what our judge has done, that the judge is judged in our place, he is just to deal with sin and justifying us through faith, justifying, he is the justifier, there are at least five things I want us to see in how we have a new relationship. This sort of transformation to different parts of our life. First, we have a whole new relationship to our performance or our good works, if you will. That's what Paul goes to immediately. He says, what then of our boasting? It is excluded. Boasting makes no sense to a Christian because what are you, what, why are you, you were dead and you were raised out of a grave. Good job. Jesus' death applies more to you than somebody else? Come on. Oftentimes, we need to both repent of our sin, the sins that are easier to see, not so subtle, but there's also very subtle forms of boasting, right, where we need to repent of our righteousness, quote unquote, repent of our thinking as if we can be righteous without Jesus. Sin often just tries to act as if Jesus didn't do what he did. And so if we think we can be good on our own, then we are acting as if Jesus hasn't indeed come and died in our place. So our performance Good works obviously still flow very naturally. There is this law of faith that he talks about, which he's going to expand more on later in Romans. But the whole reason is different. The whole reason is different. It's like a whole new game, a whole new playing field. You're not performing anymore to outdo one another. And you're certainly not performing to impress God. You can't climb that mountain by yourself. You're being carted up. We have been freed from also the burden of needing to perform. I think a lot of us struggle with this incredible, incredible burden to change the world, to save our family, whatever it may be. You have been saved from that. You will not outdo what Jesus has done. So we have a whole new relationship to our performance. We also, maybe most obviously, we have a new relationship to our sin. Our sin has been punished. If you have received this by faith, 
If you are in Jesus, your sin is already punished. You have been set free. He calls it redemption in our passage. Imagine the redemption that this word echoes from Egypt coming out, walking through the Red Sea. As surely, the Israelites could say, as surely as the Egyptians are drowning in the sea, we are free from Egypt. Now we can say, as surely as Jesus died and has been raised, that is as sure as we can be that our sin has already been punished, has already been dealt with. We are no longer identified by our sin. Though we may feel like we are caught up in it, there is a distinction, which, hallelujah, if you struggle, well, not if, you all, us all who struggle in sins, that is not who you are. Such that God can say, I have punished your sin and you are now alive as a new person. Live that way. Live accordingly. That's where the moral commands start from. Our sin is in the grave, but we are not. We are in a whole new relationship to our sin. Which, very related to that, we also have a whole new relationship to our suffering. Our suffering, any pain you're going through, discomfort. Why is that? I want to make sure we're always drawing the connection between Jesus being judged in our place to these implications. What is the reason here? Well, when you are suffering, what makes your suffering worse? Thinking God is against you. That God is punishing you. If you are suffering and you are in Jesus, you do not have to think that anymore. This is not God punishing your sin. He may be disciplining you as a loving father, but he is not punishing your sin. It's already been punished. How could he punish it again? Was Jesus' sacrifice not enough? This is why the gospel is so much better than karma. So much better. We can be fearless in preaching that. Humbly, but fearless. Stop worrying about what you're putting out into the universe. If we believe what we are putting out into the universe is going to come back and bite us, that is horrible news. Horrible news. So either you're just being dishonest, you're not really putting that many bad things out into the universe, right? Or you're going to be absolutely in despair. Because you're going to think around every corner you're going to get caught by whatever you've done. The gospel is the opposite of karma. If karma says you receive what you put out, the gospel says you receive the opposite. You put out sin and you receive righteousness. Love. Grace. Because we now know that God is for us. Remember, he put on display his righteousness. And in judging sin, he judged not us, but Jesus. It's crazy. I hope we're realizing that it's crazy.
I've got two more implications. We have a new relationship to our performance, our sin, our suffering. We also have a whole new relationship to one another. And this being part of our Total Christ series, hopefully it becomes very, very clear how we are called to be a gospel-centered church, a gospel-centered community, which if we are in awe of this, that means we have to keep this first, first things first. If this is such a big deal, then we ought to focus on it. This ought to be our priority. So it's going to be what we are talking about a lot, but it's also hopefully going to bleed out into other ways. It, it, it's not just that we talk a lot about the gospel. It should be a place where we can smell the gospel. We can feel it. You can, it's like you can touch it with one another. Obviously, it's not in a community where we are boastful and self-righteous. So that has been rooted out. It's a community where if we are sharing hard truths with one another, it's always in a gospel context. There are hard truths in this passage, right? This truth is for those who believe. Which means if you don't believe, you will have to face your judge on your own without Jesus. That will not go well for you. Right? But if we are ever talking about hard truths, we are doing it in a gospel-centered context, which doesn't mean we're trying to lighten it up. We're doing it in a way that keeps Jesus as the one who is judged in our place at the center, which means we're doing it humbly, vulnerably. This is why I had us read Psalm 51. You might have wondered. Psalm 51 is the quintessential confession of sin song, uh, psalm. Right after David commits both adultery and murder in the same chapter of the Bible, he writes this psalm. Have mercy on me. So a gospel-centered place is a place where we can actually be vulnerable, not just because it's trendy to be authentic, but because we really are trying to live as if we're freed from our sin. This is why, partly why it's so hard to, so hard to believe why certain you know, public figures and influencers or whatever are actually Christian. They claim to be Christian. It's just hard to imagine them ever on their knees, isn't it? Could they ever really say Psalm 51? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to judge. Now, now I'm the one being self-righteous, right? It's just hard to imagine. A Christian is one who is comfortable with being on his knees, metaphorically or literally. I know some people can't kneel. Or is that what our community is like? Do you feel like this is a place where if it's not, you can speak up? Because if you can't speak up, that's probably a sign that it's not. What are the blind spots that I have, that we have? We should be a place where we are free to discuss that because we have left behind posturing and boasting and trying to 
impress each other. This is where, obviously, we need one another to do that. You may think in reading Romans 3 that you can get away with some kind of me and Jesus spirituality. Thank God, Jesus has died for me and I am set free and I got my Savior. But the Bible knows nothing of a Christian who tries to do it by himself or herself. It makes absolutely no sense. And in this aspect, it at least makes sense because how much of your sin are you going to see on your own? Are you really going to be able to see your blind spots? Our car, we, had, we, had, we have two cars. Both of our cars lost a side rear view mirror. So we had blind spots on the right side in both cars. Luckily, I taped it up, so we're all good. <laughs> what are the blind spots that we have? Maybe it's a spirituality that doesn't even want to admit that we have any. Which is horribly deadly, right? To a Christian community. So we have a whole new relationship to one another as well. Obviously, we can go on and on about this. And then finally, we have a whole new relationship to God. To God. Because if he started out as our judge, he certainly still is our judge, and yet we hide in the name of Jesus and are made just. We are righteous just like our righteous God. We are considered righteous or just simply by faith, not by anything that we've done. We have a whole new way to relate to God. As Paul says elsewhere, we can call him Abba, Father. He is not scary anymore to us, though we ought to always respect his holiness because he is still that same judge. We can draw near to him. We are those who receive the gift of grace. We are, if anything, first receivers. In a world that is trying to live, 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 we first have to die so that we can receive the gift of faith. Trying to, in a world, you know, everyone, we're trying to do so much, we first have to stop and rest in the perfect anchor of our soul, the comfort of our soul. That's how we can relate to God now. A non-anxious presence, if you will. There's obviously so, so much more that we can talk about with this. We can talk more later outside if you want. Let's take a moment and prepare our hearts to come and feast, to come and dwell together at his table. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.